Well, we're working our way through Paul's letter to the Philippians, and uh, middle of Philippians 3, it's quite hard to divide it up, and it's also wonderful that I went back a bit into last week's passage. So we're going to start at verse 10 and then go to chapter 4 and verse 1, and Chris is going to read. Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 10. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. It would be great if you could open up to Philippians chapter 3, and if you have a church Bible, that's on page 1,180. Let's ask for God's help. Truly, here, Lord, is the word of life. Grant that we may hear it and receive it. In Jesus' name. For a few months during my gap year, I worked at a charity in the east end of London that was sort of vaguely church-related. It was a sort of vaguely Christian ethos to it, but not, not of an especially Bible-based kind. And there were several of us volunteers who uh, were from, how can I put it, a more evangelical kind of mindset and frame and background. And by that I mean that we believed in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we believed uh, in the Bible as uh, the supreme authority and various other things that we, we joined in with the work. And the uh, man who led it, who was uh, an ordained uh, worker priest, he called himself, I think he was a bit sniffy about people from an evangelical background. And I remember 
him saying at one point, the trouble with a lot of evangelicals is that they're so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. And this was someone who'd given, given his life to helping very poor people in Hackney in the east end of London. So he knew a bit about what it meant to make a difference for people in terms of uh, being earthly good. Now, I think whether that is true of people who believe in heaven and believe in salvation and believe in heaven and hell and the need to hear the gospel, evangelical people, whether it's true or not is not actually where I want to start, i.e. whether it's true that we're no earthly good. My starting point is to ask, is it actually true of us that we're heavenly minded? Let's worry about whether we're any earthly good, perhaps in a bit. Are we actually heavenly minded? And are we as heavenly minded as Christians with similar theology in different parts of the world? Or different parts of church history? For decades, there was a very eccentric academic who was the deputy librarian in the UL, the Cambridge University Library. He was called Basil Atkinson. For some reason, I found myself thinking this morning that uh, if he was alive today, he'd probably have a personal email address with the at in the middle, so it would be Basil Atkinson. I thought that was rather cool. Um, anyway, <clears throat> these were the days when there used to be open-air preaching in the middle of Cambridge. It was the time, culturally, when that worked. And he was preaching somewhere, maybe Market Square or, I don't know, outside Great St. Mary's, for all I know. And there were people listening. And in the course of his uh, little open-air talk, he used the word heaven. And a student, students gathered to listen, believe it or not, a student said, what do you know about heaven? And Basil Atkinson said, I live there. And smiled. There's something a little bit unreal and unusual about that. But at the same time, I'm trying to put before you, largely people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the question as to how heavenly-minded you are, how much you even think about heaven, how important it is, how much of a driver and a consolation and a shaper of your responses and your proactive decisions, how much it actually is. If you like the centerpiece of the passage is where Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. And as we work through it, we'll see the precise implications of that. But he's clearly saying something that asks us these questions if we're to take it seriously. Are we heavenly-minded? Does it matter if we're not? Should we be? How can we be more heavenly-minded? And so as we look through the passage, we're going to think about the importance of heavenly-mindedness, its opposite, its focus, its essence, and its future. First of all, then, its importance. Now, Paul has been using himself as an example of what it means to try to live with the mindset of Christ himself. In the early part of chapter 3, he's described his own journey 
From thinking he could keep the law and earn his way to heaven, to realizing he had to rely on Christ, and coming to know Christ as his Savior. And then a whole mindset in which he didn't look back, either in complacency or anger or regret at the past, nor did he simply focus on the present, though the present did matter, experiencing Christ in the present, But he was focused on pressing forward, and he uses that wonderful picture, that word, twice, of pressing forward into Christ's future, with a particular focus on taking the next step towards heaven. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me, and I think that means being with him in heaven. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold on it. I've not got there yet. But one thing I do, there's a single-minded focus, forgetting what's behind and straining towards what's ahead. I press on to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. And he's saying that to inspire them to do the same. And in verse 15, he reflects on just how important this is for all of us. And what he does essentially here is to speak to a church in which there is a spectrum of spiritual maturity. And he says, actually, if you're mature, you'll think the same way. And there's a kind of funny little kind of play on words there, because he's essentially saying, uh, if you're mature, you'll realize that you're not as mature as you could be. It's only if you're immature that you think you're mature in the full sense. Christian maturity is realizing that there is more. There's more maturity to grow into and then heaven beyond it. And I think then he addresses some who may see it differently. And he says, well, actually God will show you in due time. Because God is at work in all of us, wherever we are on that spectrum of Christian maturity. And he will show us over time that the heavenly perspective is the one that matters. And then there's this, this little bit of pastoral application, and he says, let us live up to what we've already attained. It really matters that you don't stagnate spiritually. Look at yourself. Are you stagnating? Look at yourself. Are you even regressing? These are serious questions, and heavenly-mindedness is a very big part of the kind of diagnostic test as well as the answer to them. It matters wherever we are on the maturity, the spectrum of Christian maturity in Christ, in the church. A refocus on heavenly-mindedness really, really matters. It is the one thing. And then in verse 17, he says... And you don't have to work that out on your own. Choose good models and keep your eye on them. Join together, he says, very boldly in following my example. Lots of people who are leaders or teachers of different kinds, I think, very much shy away from taking those words on their lips. I certainly find that a problematic kind of a thing. 
The funny thing is that with uh, leaders of different kinds, we do tend to imitate them, but it's more in terms of imitating their little foibles and the little kind of um, things that are slightly strange about them. There was a wedding of an Eden staff member many, many years ago, and um, uh, another staff member was invited to the wedding, and there were a whole set of guests on the table that the second staff member was at, and there was one he didn't recognize, but all the other were Eden people. And so he thought in a break in the proceedings, he would launch into a massively embarrassing imitation of me. And he was going full throttle. I don't know quite what it was. He was very good at this, Tom Chapman, and he, he did it on many occasions. Um, and then someone nudged him. And he said, and the person said, do you, do you know who that guest you don't know is who's just sitting over there? She said, no, that's Julian's sister. <laughs> Fortunately, she thought it was hilarious too. Now, I hope there are going to be loads and loads of you who uh, do the most scurrilous kinds of uh, imitations and tell the most embarrassing anecdotes and mock me in in totally uh, libelous ways in a couple of weeks' time at the church social. But when I think of imitating me in other ways, that's something which is difficult. And yet part of the pressure of leadership is to live and to hope that there will be something, even if it's working from the lesser to the greater that people see and that they will imitate. Paul certainly did. But he wasn't enough. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Who is it that you seek out? Who is it that refocuses and retunes you spiritually? Keep your eye on them. Because we are all surrounded by influences that will otherwise lead us in the opposite direction. Heavenly mindedness, we need the right models, but there is a danger of the opposite of the right models. Next slide, Kevin. 4 verse 18, as I've often told you, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. It seems quite likely here that he's talking about people who've had some kind of connection with the church um, uh, or with the work of God in, in God's Old Testament community, the Jews, but actually, uh, actually not connected with its heart. They live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And it's important for, for leaders to point out that this is the case. Notice how Paul does it. The tone is one of great sadness. He's actually weeping as he does it. He hates to think of this and the implications for these people. He's not enjoying denouncing them or dissecting them forensically and showing how, how silly they are. There is deep regret, and yet he needs to say, there are people out there who live in the opposite way to heavenly-mindedness, which means being focused simply on the things of this world. Their mind, at the end of verse 19, is set on earthly things. It is a mindset that is, is, is natural in the world outside of the church, but it creeps into the church sometimes as well, and then the result is disastrous. A focus simply on this world. And at our point in Western civilization, it is more and more common for that to be the case. Because essentially, if you think in very crude and simplistic terms of reality, 
being what we can see and perceive and know about within this universe, and then a whole spiritual dimension outside of it, and also history being the history that we know and anticipate living in um, until we die, but there also being a post-death history beyond it, there are these two zones, the present spiritual realm and the future spiritual realm, or the future that God will bring about after our death and after the end of this world. Essentially, in Western society, we've blanked out both of those two. We live in this world only. Now, that means being an enemy of the cross of Christ, because the cross of Christ is about self-denial and self-sacrifice for the sake of what will happen in the next world. That's the whole point of Jesus' death and his resurrection, to make eternal salvation possible. And the opposite of the models who model heavenly-mindedness are those who model this world-mindedness, a focus simply on this world. And actually, that means being an enemy of the cross. What does it look like? Well, he says very graphically, their God is their stomach. It's a, world, it's, it's a mindset in which life is based on the creature comforts and earthly securities and opportunities and pleasures, the appetites being satisfied of this world. And you make that your goal. This world is all that matters. So max out on your own personal fulfillment, gratification, security, comfort within this world. And actually, it's a terrible place to be. Because what you glory in is actually deeply shameful. Because that means saying that God doesn't exist. And it's, it's terrible, a terrible, terrible thing to do. And the end result is terrible too. Their destiny is destruction. Terrible, terrible choices made in this life. As, this, as if there was no other life. But there is another life. A coming life. And if you choose this life only in this life. In the other life you end up in destruction. And the terrible condemnation, the eternal punishment of hell. And this is the opposite of heavenly mindedness, just focusing on this life. I wonder if you know what that's like. I wonder if you feel that pressure. I wonder if you've experienced that in conversations with people and in the tugs. Just a physical appetite as well as of other things. Well, Pill warns about it, heavenly mindedness. It's opposite. And then he says, and he speaks of this great contrast. And the great contrast is with who we are as Christians. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. Heavenly mindedness its focus. And he uses uh, an illustration that, as uh, Jim has helped us start thinking about already, works really, really well in Philippi, because Philippi was in Greece, but it was a major Roman colony. And the Roman identity and culture and ethos and feel was very, very significant. It was like a little outpost of Rome, bringing the culture and the values and the prosperity and the identity of Rome, which was the dominant imperial power, into this place in Greece. 
There are many Roman soldiers who've been settled there. There are others who are granted Roman citizenship. Roman citizenship, a really, really big deal. So this is a place where citizenship matters. It's an illustration that really works for them. And he says, actually, your citizenship is in heaven. Your main identity is not in this world It's in heaven. Your main security is not in this world. It's in heaven. And you're here as a little outpost, a little colony. Just as it was a Roman colony in Greece, so this is a Christian colony in the Roman colony in Greece. This is who we are. We're not primarily... British citizens or citizens of any other country. Our primary home is not actually Cambridge or anywhere else if you're visiting. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our home is in heaven. And for a while, we're a colony on earth of heavenly-minded people. Does that sound very airy-fairy? Does that sound like something that doesn't connect Try having your earthly home taken away. And then you start to see the impact. Pavel and Oksana have escaped twice. They lived in Krim in the Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. When the Russians took it in 2014, they had to escape. They moved to Irpin, near Kiev. They built a new house again. Now it's destroyed and they had to escape again. They said they're double refugees. They said it with peace in their hearts. The fact that we have our home in heaven now has stronger and deeper meaning. You see, the essence of heavenly-mindedness is to know now but your real identity and security are not in this world. What about the essence of heavenly-mindedness, then? It, it is very much a focus on being connected now with the reality of Christ sitting at the right hand on high and ruling the universe of interceding for us, of having secured our salvation, and therefore our, our, hearts, our hearts in many ways can gravitate there. And that's one of the benefits of prayer and of worship, that we are taken there. But it's not just about that movement upwards, if we can put it in those, those crude symbolic terms. It's about looking forwards to what comes next. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there. And once again, he is making an attack on attitudes in his contemporary society, because the Roman emperors were often described as the saviour of the world. Same word. And there was this tendency to think that a great political leader in this world was the one to trust. 
Well, he's making a highly polemical point for those with ears to hear it. That actually there is a saviour, but it is no political figure there ever has been or ever will be. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who died on a cross, was buried and raised again, and is coming again for us. And there's a tendency for all of us to hope for someone in this world to put things right, or a political movement, or a, 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 a particular uh, societal change. And this doesn't mean that we shouldn't be working for better political conditions, better social conditions. Of course it doesn't. It really, really doesn't mean those things. But our hope ultimately is in the change that will come when the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, returns. As Scripture says, he will do. He will come again. Either we will die first, or we will be alive when it happens. We eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice what that future is. Who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. When he first came, he deliberately allowed his power to be limited. Yes, there were miracles, but also he ended up in total powerlessness upon the cross. When he returns, there will be the exercise of loving, but firm and just, infinite power to put everything right and to punish all evil and banish it forever. Someone has said, that great end-of-age power will have no rival, will leave no enemy unaddressed, no authority still standing, as death is utterly and finally defeated. Isn't that just so wonderful? Don't we long in utopian ways for that kind of putting everything right? Well, he will put everything right. That power, the writer goes on, will also command the dead atoms of the bodies of all those who've died in Christ to rise and be transformed into new immortal bodies fit for a new heavens and a new earth. This is the great hope for the great longing of every single human being. How can I beat death? How can I be fully alive as a human being with a mind and a body? And the answer to it is that the Lord Jesus Christ himself has a mind and a body. And he was raised from the dead. And it, it was a real body. People could touch him. He could eat. But it was gloriously transformed. This is our hope too if we are in Christ. We eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Oh, Christian friends, think of the things about your body that just so frustrate you, that hinder you, that you dislike and fear and struggle with. Especially to those with poor health. 
and for those for whom hospital visits are the norm, not the exception. Our future is to have glorious, resurrected bodies. We should meditate on that. So what difference does heavenly-mindedness make? Let's run through some suggestions. It really is a promise of a time when not just physical problems, but every kind of problem is put behind us. When Christ shall put his glorious arm around your head and you rest in an infinite home of surpassing glory. When glory and ripened grace shall be within you and without you, above and below. When feet of clay shall walk upon pure, surpassing glory. Then the thoughts of your, all your present troubles shall be as shadows that passed away ten thousand years ago. Heavenly mindedness is looking forward to that and believing it, even if it's hard to imagine quite what it will be like. It will be glory. And one second of that glory will heal a lifetime of suffering. So many ways we could apply this. One minister preaching in central South London, the 19th century, had a number of people in his church, I suspect many of them were women, who were needle workers. That meant working six days a week, incredibly long hours, wouldn't be allowed these days, just sewing, sewing. Very hard work. How can you tell someone who sews because of the calluses on the opposite hand? Really, really hard work. And he was preaching on a text like this. And he said, oh, how wonderful will heaven's rest be to you. How glad you will be when you get there to find there are no Monday mornings. No more toil. But rest. Eternal rest. And you know, this, this, this speaks to those who are not Christians as well. So many of us in this life experience life as a set of longings and aspirations that we know won't be perfectly fulfilled and even at their very best will be passing. So writer Albert Camus argued that our hearts long for love without any partings. That a universe without God gives us only the conscious certainty of death without hope. And he called this terrible lack of fulfillment the absurd. He thought it was just something you had to live with. He saw it as just one long black comedy of incurably, unchangingly, seeking out things from life that it simply can't provide in a lasting way. Try it. Which of your relationships can you hold on to for the whole of your life? Which of your possessions can you hold on to for the whole of your life? Which of your this-worldly Desires, can you expect to be fulfilled perfectly and not transiently? This world and its desire are passing away. This is the tragedy of living for this world only. It doesn't and it can't last. The things of this world cannot fulfill our deepest heart longings. You can never get 
out of romance or sex or food or drink or career or holidays or recreations or even simple love and family life. The accomplishment of of work you cannot get for fulfillment that a relationship with God in Christ will bring you forever. If you're not a believer, I urge you to think of your life this way and consider the heavenly reality now that you're just ignoring and the heavenly reality to come in which there's great jeopardy for you but also great potential of knowing Christ and knowing him forever. It makes a difference if you're not a believer. It makes such a difference if you're a believer too. For those who struggle with doubt... And sometimes you feel that you're almost less than half there as a Christian. You think other people just seem so much more straightforward and and at ease as Christians. And you have these doubts and these conflicts. But you've still got some faith. Do you know in heaven there will be a kind of intuitive and immediate grasp of the truth and reality of Christ. In which there will be no doubt. There will be no conflict. Those bits that now are good for you, just a, a part of your inner being, and it's troubled by the doubts and, uh, and the fears and so on. In heaven, there will be no doubts or fears, just an immediacy and a total, total experience of God in all his love to you for Christ Jesus. Can you believe that? It is coming. And when we think of the blessings of this life, heavenly-mindedness is so important because the very best things of this life, if we understand them properly, are just great signposts to something better that's coming. That's the way to receive the good things of this life, or the first, the first way. Those things we enjoy the most, and we say, yeah, this is great, but it's incomplete, and it can't last. But something's coming that is better and perfect and will last. And then we think of the things that we haven't given up voluntarily, but the Lord hasn't sent into our lives all that he's taken away. There are some people who, through circumstances or personal moral choice, will never have a sexual experience or sleep in the bed with someone that they're married to. And that can feel desperately unfair and enormously frustrating. I was speaking in the autumn to a conference of Christians who have same-sex attraction and who seek to live Christ's way, which means not acting out their same-sex attraction. And I said to them very gently that they were heroes of the faith for me. But what I also said was, when they arrive in heaven, they're not going to be complaining to God about their lack of sexual fulfillment. And the same is true for anyone else who is sexually or relationally unfulfilled because of circumstances or because of personal choice. He will make it all up to you. That's the glory of heaven. And then we think of the hard choices that we do make in this life. You see, heavenly mindedness drives us to do things we wouldn't do otherwise. 
Notably, not to see this life as just an opportunity to maximise our own pleasure. It enables us to serve. It releases us to serve. Because we know that Jesus is at work, and we know that it's important that we serve before he returns, so that as many people as possible have heard the good news and have seen it embodied in the way Christians live and work. An older writer spoke of possessions and says... If God has given us ample estates, and he means uh, lands and houses and possessions of different kinds, including the opportunities that our gifts give us, he says it's not to furnish us here as for a settled abode, but that we should use them for the present and be ready to leave them in a very little time. It's an entirely different way of thinking about the good things of this life, an opportunity to serve Christ with them now. And the prospect of heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ bringing all things under his uh, glorious power helps us in some of the losses that happen to us that can seem so painful. Some of you remember that we had a puppy called Molly who was run over by a van after just four or five weeks of being with us. I was very affected by it. I think I realise now that part of that was a kind of um, rather localised kind of trauma because I'd seen it happen and I still struggle a bit with a kind of minor, minor kind of traumatic reaction to that. But I was very grieved and I found great help from a poem written by the Christian pastor John Piper about heaven. And he refers to his dog who had died. Uh, it's not just about dogs, but uh, there's this sort of small dog section of it. And Piper's writing about a kind of vision of heaven that he had, and he says, As I knelt beside the brook to drink eternal life, I took a glance across the golden grass and saw my, my dog, young Molly. That's our name, not his. I put ours in. And saw my dog, young Molly, fast as she could come. She let the stream, almost, and what a happy gleam was in her eye. I knelt to drink and knew that I was on the brink of endless joy. And everywhere I turned, I saw a wonder there. In the greater scheme of things, it's not the most difficult thing that's happened to me. But you see, heavenly-mindedness does make a difference in the losses and the crosses of this present life. It really does. It makes a huge difference. And part of being a heavenly-minded Christian is being able to bring that perspective to being single and wishing you weren't single, to being in a perhaps difficult and conflicted marriage and wishing you weren't in a difficult and conflicted marriage, to having frustrations in work or in your body or in other places, and being able to take the leap of faith and to keep going to a place in which everything is different and Christ is all in all, and there is no more pain and no more suffering. And we receive the, the good things of this life as like tinklings anticipating glorious thunder. We see the opportunities we have as ones just to serve Christ. And knowing that if we give up something in this life, the equivalent or something better will be with us in the next life. It's why the whole thing about bucket lists is such utterly this worldly rubbish. Just to give a personal example of how it worked with me, and I'm not saying that this should apply to anyone else. I said in my mid-twenties, 
there's going to be mountains and snow in heaven. Part of me would love to learn to ski, but I'm going to have millions of years to do it. That was just me. Bless you if you go skiing. I'm not saying Christians shouldn't go skiing. (laughs) But I do say to you that every single Christian will have something like that. That you are ready to wait for. And in fact, many things like that. I wonder what it is for you, and I want to just particularly for you that the Lord's speaking to you about this morning. What is it you're trying to grasp for or hold on to or become too focused on or too sad or angry or upset about not having or losing and thinking you'll never have? Focus on what God will give you in Christ in heaven. And then give yourself to him in the circumstances of your life and in his calling on your life and your use of his gifts and opportunities. This is what heavenly-mindedness looks like. This is why heavenly-mindedness actually makes all the difference. C.S. Lewis had heard that quote about um, certain people being so heavenly-minded they were no earthly good, and he says robustly, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were just those who thought the most of the next. Heavenly-mindedness generates energy, sacrifice, Hope, activity, the channeling of what God has given us into the building of his kingdom and his glory in this life. Lewis says it's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the new world that they've become ineffective in this world. An amazing pastor, Richard Baxter, who did an amazing work in a town called Kidderminster in the 17th century, was a very, very ill man. He suffered chronically from, let's go through the list, it's like one of those organ recitals, kidney stones, headaches, bleeding, toothaches, swollen feet, and a myriad of other chronic ailments. And yet he really worked to evangelize that town. He almost died at one point. And then he had a sort of vision of heaven. And the Lord brought him back again. He committed to meditating upon heaven every day. That was what part was part of drawing him onwards. And the other part about heavenly mindedness is just a willingness for the Lord to take us wherever he chooses. That our roots are not too deep in this life. And we're ready for our lives to be at his disposal, to serve him in whatever way he calls, and then for him to take us out of service, to take us into new service, or to take us home. There was a very godly and warm Presbyterian ministry in the United States, uh, Jack Miller, and uh, someone else who wrote an autobiography, including his relationship with Jack Miller, says he preached for our church a number of times in the next few years. This is when... Um, Miller was uh, rather older. He said, I think this is Jack Miller. It may be another Jack. I, anyone who knows some of the detail here, don't worry about the Miller. And so this older pastor, and on the 10th of January 2005, he was preaching about heaven. He finished the main part of his sermon and then began to reflect informally. He said he didn't want to stay on this earth one moment 
beyond the completion of the work God had given him here. And then he said, and when I get to heaven, and he stopped and looked upward. And the writer says, I imagined later that as he looked up, he saw angels coming for him. And then he collapsed. A lady nurse in the congregation ran to him and someone called 999, but he'd evidently died right then. Are you ready? Are you eager? Are you waiting? Are you heavenly minded? Let's spend a moment in quiet and then I'll pray. confess that too often the world that we can see is all we focus on. So we lift our eyes to heaven for a moment now. We see you, Lord Jesus, on your throne on high. And we praise you that you sit there as our advocate and saviour. We confess too that we think very much in terms of this world its opportunities and dangers, its appetites, its satisfactions, and its disappointments. But we praise you that there is a new and better and perfect world coming, and that can be ours by faith. And, O Lord, we pray you would strengthen that faith and truly make us heavenly-minded so that we do the maximum amount of earthly good in the time you give us. And then we pray at the time of your calling, you would take us home. 